0: you to go with me to Proverbs chapter number two uh, here this afternoon. Proverbs 2. Appreciate uh, your pastor inviting me uh, to be able to come. Uh, I know that I'm a substitute. and going to do the best that I can. Uh, with the hurricane, we had some things cancel on us as well and trying still trying to pick up the pieces. I know uh, things were a little more difficult down in this neck of the woods actually where we've come. Uh, some churches that are hurting and uh, certainly those folks are in our prayers. Uh, but uh, you know, as we talk about uh, marriage over the next uh, next couple of days, uh, today and tomorrow. We think about what the Lord wants us to be, how he wants us to look at. It. I wanted to open, kind of with a thought on the right perspective, having the right perspective on how you treat your marriage. And uh, we're going to look here in Proverbs chapter number 2. Uh, I had a uh, pastor friend share with me the other day about a, a couple that he had in his church. Um, the uh, He had gotten, had some tests done, and he went to the doctor to uh, have those Test results run, and his wife accompanied him uh, to the uh, doctor's office. And uh, after uh, the doctor had spoken to him, uh, he asked his wife to come into the office alone. And uh, he told her, he said, your husband is, is sick. He's very ill. He's, uh, he's, he's not going not gonna to make it probably uh, another year, but perhaps maybe you can help. His disease that he's got along with his stress needs to be managed. And she said, you can do something maybe to help save him, uh, maybe to save his life. And the wife and I said, well, doctor, what, what do you think I should do? What do I have to do? And she, he said, well, each morning you've got to fix him a healthy breakfast. Uh, be pleasant. Uh, make sure he's in a good mood. Uh, for lunch, make him a nutritious meal. For dinner, uh, prepare an especially nice meal for him. Uh, don't burden him with chores. He's probably had a hard day. Uh, don't discuss your problems with him. Uh, it will only make him stress a little bit worse. And most importantly, you got to be intimate with your husband several times a week. Satisfy his every whim. Uh, if you can do this for the next 10 months to a year, I think your husband will regain his health. I think he'll he'll do well, and you guys will have a long, healthy marriage. On the way home, the husband turned to his wife, and he said, Well, honey, what did the doctor say to you? And she said, He said, You're going to die. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully by the time that we get done, we have a little bit more care and compassion for our spouses than that. You know, God made us all very different, didn't He? God made men and women very different. We're thankful for that in many respects. Sometimes we wish uh, we could get on the same page a little bit more. I uh, I read a little thing about ten observations that highlight the differences between a man and a woman. I found them to be uh, very spot on, and I hope that you will, too. Uh, number one, a man will pay ten dollars... For a $5 item he wants. A woman will pay $5 Five dollars for a $10 item that she doesn't want or need. Okay. Two, a woman worries about the future until she gets a husband. A man never worries about the future until he gets a wife. Three, a successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can spend. Oh yeah. A successful woman is one who can find such a man. <laughs> Number four. To be happy with a man, you must understand him a lot and love him a little. To be happy with a woman, you must love her a lot and not try to understand her at all. Amen. Thank the invitation. Five. Married men live longer than single men, but married men are a lot more willing to die. Is <laughs> that <laughs> <Not> true? <laughs> Number six. Number six. Any married man should forget his mistakes. Because there's no reason for two people to remember the same thing. <laughs> Seven. Men wake up as good looking as they went to bed. Women somehow deteriorate during the night. <laughs> I know. Number eight. A woman marries a man expecting he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, but she does. Okay? Number nine. A woman has the last word in any argument. Anything a man says after that is the beginning of a new argument. (laughs) Right? And number ten. There are two times when a man doesn't understand a woman. Before and after marriage. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. All right. God made us very different. God made us not only very different, but God made us uh, so that when we come together, uh, that we're together for a long, long period of time. We we say these words and we mean them. We should mean them till death do us part. But I think sometimes in our in our culture, the way that we understand marriage has been redefined, or the way that we perceive marriage, or our perspective on marriage is different than the way that the Bible sets it up. Well, are in Proverbs, I'd like for you to look with me in Proverbs chapter number 2. and I want you to look with me at verses 16 and 17. I'll read a couple verses here, and then we're going to go to Malachi just for a second, okay? I just want to give you kind of the foundation here of my thought. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, notice verses 16 and 17. Here in this passage, Solomon is giving wisdom to his son, and he's giving him wisdom about watching out for what the Bible calls the strange woman, all right? Now the strange woman is the one that, that that lures the the young man in. She she's a temptress of sorts, all right. She's very uh, uh, she's very provocative. She is uh, very sensual, and she's trying to lure him in. And so he's warning. There's a warning given here about this. Notice what the Bible says, verse 16: "Deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words." Okay, that's. One of the tools that she use, uses, she, she flatters with her words and draws in. Verse 17, which forsaketh the guide of her youth and forgetteth the covenant of her God. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. I like a lot of times when we talk about the strange woman, the way that we perceive her is though as though she's some sort of harlot. Okay, She's a prostitute who's walking the streets, and the man is out uh, wandering around, and she just kind of, on the street corner, kind of motions him in. But that's not what the picture is in verse 17 of her. In verse 17 of her, notice it says, which forsaketh the guide of her youth and forgetteth the covenant of her God. The reference here in verse number 17 is to a woman who is married, who has gone out in search of something else other than what God has given her in her home. And the way that that is described here in verse number 17 is that she forgets, forgets what? She forgets. Forsaketh the guide of her youth. Who's that? That's her husband, okay? The person who's guiding her in her youth. And notice it says, forgetteth the covenant of her God. That is, there she entered into a covenant with her husband at the day of their, of their marriage. And as a result of this forgetting and forsaking that she's doing, she's out hunting for fresh blood, okay? That is the picture that Solomon paints of this woman. Not as though she's a harlot or a prostitute but that she's a woman who is in full possession of her faculties, even though she's married, is out looking for something else. Okay. Now go with me. Hold your finger here to Proverbs 2 and go with me to Malachi for just a second. Malachi. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. And follow, follow with me to Malachi chapter number 2. Malachi chapter 2. In Malachi chapter number 2, we have God speaking through the prophet Malachi, and he's speaking, of course, to the nation of Israel concerning their disobedience. And the Lord describes Himself here in this passage as the husband of Israel. And I want you to look at the way that this description is given. And I want to kind of draw an analogy and move forward. Notice what He says in Malachi 2, verse number 14. Yet He say, He tells them, you've you've basically, you've not been following me, you've not been doing what I've been telling you to do. Okay, And so then they're responding. Notice verse 14. Yet He say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Alright, so here in this passage and in both passages here's here's the concept that I want you to get. Concept in both of these passages is in chapter number 2 of Proverbs, the strange woman is one who has forsaken the guide of her youth and forgotten her covenant. In Malachi chapter number 2 verse number 14 when God admonishes them through the prophet Malachi, and he talks about marriage, he says in verse number 14, that he says, between thee and the wife of thy youth, again, dealing with coming together, okay, and in our marriage, and he says, he says, notice he goes on, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion, and notice he says, the wife of thy covenant. Both passages, Proverbs 2, and in Malachi too, and I think if we were to look at other passages of Scripture, we would find that God's view of marriage is a marriage of a covenant. Now, I want you to know that God is a God of, co- of covenants. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is a God of covenants. That is, He's a God of promises. God makes promises, and He follows through on those promises. When you got married, you made a promise or a covenant to your wife. When you got married, you made a promise or a covenant with your husband, and at that day, you made that covenant before God. God being witness, and the others present being witness, you made a covenant. Now, the problem that we have is that rather than looking at marriage as a covenant, our culture has forced us into a contractual perspective of marriage, rather than a covenantal experiment or covenantal view of marriage. Say What's the difference between a contract and a covenant? There's a big difference between a contract and a covenant. Let me talk first off about the way that God worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when God made covenants, we see a whole bunch of covenants. You go back to the Garden of Eden, you have the Edenic covenant that God made with them in the garden. Then you have the Adamic covenant that God made with Adam, okay, about providing a Redeemer that would to come. Then the Noahic covenant. Remember that we see the sign of the Noahic covenant every time we see a rainbow, that God is not going to punish the world again uh, in the same way that he did through a worldwide flood. God's just promised that he's not going to do that. And you guys can count on that promise still today, right? Because we see the promise up in the sky that God has made. You go forward a little bit. You saw the Mosaic covenant. The people come to Mount Sinai. God takes Moses up on the mountain. He makes a covenant with the people there. And they walk underneath that covenant. In Jeremiah 31, we read about the New Covenant. What's the New Covenant? New Covenant is, God's not gonna, in the New Testament, God's not going to write it on tablets of stone, but He's going to write it on our hearts. And that God's going to have a relationship with us. And we are all partakers of the New Covenant that God made with Israel through the person of Jesus Christ. And so, God is a God of covenants. In fact, even your Bible itself. Is broken down into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another word for testament is covenant or promise. So even your Bible is broken down. So God has always been a God of promises and covenants and testaments. That's the way He works. Now if that's the way God works, and if that's the way God works with us, then I think we understand the reason that when God puts things together, He puts them together in covenant relation. The problem is, In our culture, we've been taught to think about things contractually. What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Well, listen to what, think about what a contract is, okay? Contracts are often made for a limited period of time. When you enter into a contract, you say that certain things must be done by a certain date. Some of you that work uh, under contract you know that the contract is not indefinite. It has a particular deadline, a time when it ends, a time when you have to meet it, meet the deadline. Okay? When we talk about deadlines, what are we talking about? We're talking about contracts. Okay? Sometimes I think we treat our marriages, people treat marriage that way. I'll give marriage a try. I'll give this thing a shot. We'll just figure it out as we go along and maybe just maybe but in their minds thinking you know if it doesn't work out we can get out of this because it really isn't forever if it doesn't just everything doesn't just work together perfectly we won't have to work at it we'll just throw it out and we'll just start all over again with somebody else and so as a result we've got this rampant and rising divorce rate in our country not just amongst unsaved people but among evangelical Christians conservative Christians We've got a lot of people who are are going to divorce court calling it irreconcilable differences. You know what that is? Irreconcilable differences is simply a different way of saying, you know what, we entered into a contract, it had terms and limits, somebody didn't meet the terms of the contract, and so we're out of this. And so that's different than the way we're going to talk about covenants just a minute. Secondly, when you talk about a contract, a contract most often deals with specific actions. Uh, Do you contract for things in your marriage? Some of us do, and we don't even know it. Uh, let's say, you know, honey, I want you to. I'm going to be out with the guys this week. If uh, you watch the kids on Friday night, okay, then I'll I'll do some. I'll do the dishes for you on Saturday, okay. And so what we do is we make deals and we make bargains within the relationship. Now, doesn't mean that we can't. Those things can't sometimes work, but sometimes it's this quid pro quo concept where you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And we aren't willing to do for somebody else unless they're willing to do for us. And this whole contractual thing that we're doing is really killing our marriages, okay? Because what we're doing is, we're saying there's terms and limits on my willingness to serve you, my willingness to be able to help you, my willingness to be able to do something for you. Thirdly, contracts are based on an if-then mentality. That is, if you do this, then I will do this. And on the contrary... If you don't do this, then don't expect me to do this. If you don't behave in this way, if you don't act this way, if you don't respond in this way, then certainly don't expect me. You know, we we often say, you know, it's easier for a husband for a woman to, to to respond and respect to her husband if that husband is is loving her in the way that he's supposed to love her. That's true. It is true that it's easier for a woman to show respect and reverence to her husband. If he's loving her the right way. And and the same way it goes the other way. If a woman is respecting and referencing her husband, it's much easier for him to love her. But to withhold that on the basis of the other person not performing their function is contractual marriage. It's saying, you know what, if you're not doing this, then I'm not going to do that. So contracts are always based on an if then, if then. They always have that. Then, fourthly, Contracts are motivated by the desire to get something we want. Contracts are motivated to get, to desire to get something we want. Striking a deal to get something that you want. Do you treat your marriage like a contract? Striking a deal to get something you want. You know, oh, I don't know if he'll be willing to do that. You know, you ladies, you talk about this with your girlfriend. I don't know. I'll have to ask him. I don't know if he'd be willing to do that or not. Why wouldn't we be willing to do that? The only reason why we wouldn't be willing to do something, willing to do something for our spouses, is if we're treating it in a contractual manner. It should be assumed that if we are sharing life, and that if we are doing this thing together in the covenant way that God intended for us to do it in, that we would be willing to do whatever we can within our power in order to be able to help our spouse. But for some reason, we have created a contractual kind of agreement in our marriages where we have to see and check if someone's willing. Now, it's a different thing to check with somebody's calendar or to check whether somebody's free. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, I don't know if she would be willing. And I don't know if he would be willing. And then, fifthly, Contracts are sometimes unspoken and implicit. If I do her favor, project, check, she will make life exciting for me. Okay? But if I fail, then I will be miserable. You don't say that out loud, but you think that. They're implicit. They're implied. These are the, this is the way that we have been trained to think about marriage. It's the way that we get up in the morning and approach it. Oh, Lord, please help me not to say something stupid so that I can have a good day. Or wake up in the morning and just say you're sorry just to get it out of the way, right, guys? Mm -hmm. Just go ahead and say it. Might as well. I'm going to have to at some point during the course of the day. Apologize for just being myself and saying something stupid. You know? Ladies, get up and just say, well, I know he's going to bother me until I do it, so I might as well just go ahead and get it out of the way. We have got this contractual idea. I want you to know that when God speaks of it in Proverbs 2 and in Malachi 2, that God speaks of it in the relationship of covenant. And I want you to know that covenant is very different than contract. The question is, how are they different? So I've given you the five foundations, really, of, of contract, Now what I'd like to do is just spend the rest of our time just talking about what a covenant marriage really looks like. What does a covenant marriage really look like? What are the elements of a covenant marriage? Number one, and let's uh, let's just dig into the meat here tonight. First off, first off, covenants are different. Number one, the purpose is different. The purpose is different. Write this down if you're taking notes. Covenants are initiated for the benefit of the other person. Covenants are always initiated for the benefit of the other person. And there's an example that's given to us in the Word of God, First Samuel chapter number 18. And I, to, I don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, you more than welcome. First Samuel 18, we read about a covenant that's initiated between Jonathan and David. Okay, Jonathan, who was Saul's son, King Saul's son, and David, who was really the son-in-law. Okay, these two men had a had a friendship. That went beyond just friendship. These men loved each other in a, in a. They were they were they were best friends. They were BFFs. Jonathan and David were just they were just they were always together. They were they, they just cared for one another, loved one another in such a way. Now, when you read when you read First Samuel eighteen, here's what you find. Jonathan initiates a covenant with David. He loves David, and he initiates a co- covenant. Now I want you to know. In verse 18, David is in no position to be able to help Jonathan. Jonathan is not going to get anything out of this at all. That is he's making a covenant with David saying, "I'm going to do whatever I can to help you. I'm going to love you and take care of you." Now, here's the situation. Saul is losing his mind, okay? He's getting angrier by the day. He is he is getting ready to chase David all over the countryside. Because he hates him and he's jealous of him, and God is with David and he has departed from Saul, and the Spirit of God is with David, and an evil spirit has come upon Saul. He is he is angry, he is bitter, and he is going to chase him. So, from Jonathan's perspective, he's got a he's got his dad, okay, who didn't have to didn't choose his relationship with that that was given to him at birth. Then he's got his friend David, and he's choosing to make a relationship a covenant with his friend David. And I'm going to tell you, David's in no position to be able to do anything for Jonathan. In fact, all he's going to do is run for his life. And all Jonathan is doing here is saying, listen, I'm going to be on your side. I'm going to help you. I know that God is with you. And, and listen to the ramifications of this. The ramifications of this is David, uh, Jonathan is acknowledging, I'm not going to sit on the throne. I'm not going to get the kingdom after Dad is gone. I recognize that God has his hand on you. And I am going to do everything that I can to help you and love you and care for you as my friend. Now, there's there's absolutely nothing that David can do in reciprocation. In fact, so much so that this 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 covenant that David and Jonathan had is so it's so deep and it's so permanent. We'll talk about this in a little while. It's so deep and it's so permanent that later on, in day after David does become king, Jonathan is dead, Saul is dead, everyone's dead. David is going to remember this covenant and he's going to look for a way to show kindness to Jonathan through Jonathan's children. He's going to look for a way to be able to do something for Jonathan because he was never in his lifetime ever able to reciprocate and do something for him at all. So the way that we look at the way that we look at covenants is different than the way we look at contracts. Covenants when we look at them, covenants are always built on I'm doing this for the benefit of somebody else. Without the expectation of return. Listen, when most of us got married, we got married because we found someone who would make us happy. But the more you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and the more that you grow in your marriage, you're going to have a desire to please the person that God has given you, rather than please yourself. That's the difference between contracts and covenant. Listen, covenants reveal the desire to serve the other person, to minister to them, not to manipulate them. If you are manipulating your spouse, if you are manipulating them, trying to get them to do what you want them to do, you are not in a covenant marriage, you are in a contractual marriage. Trying to get them to do what you want them to do. The way that the Bible reveals covenants is that covenants say, you know what, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. I want to help them. I want to serve them. I want to be the servant. And by the way, if both husband and wife are serving one another, neither one of them will ever have a need. There's no need to manipulate when you're in covenant relationship because all the needs are met by, by both parties becoming servants to the other's needs. Okay. So there's no lack. There's nothing missing. Oftentimes we feel like something is missing. We feel like something is... is, is, Listen, if the Lord is in His rightful position and we are willing to minister and serve one another, that is the way that God sets up the matter of covenant marriage. The motive of a covenant is to serve. It's never self-gratification. Unfortunately, men, we are by our very nature very selfish We want what we want. We want to manipulate until we get what we want. And we are willing to sacrifice a lot of other things so that we might have. Let's just be honest about it. To say it any other way would be dishonest. That's who we are. That's who we are. Our wives are usually much more giving than we are. They're much more willing to step out of their comfort zones. They're much more willing to be kind and to be nice and to be benevolent, to be inconvenienced. Usually much more willing than we are. Why is that? Because we need that compliment in our lives. You and I need the compliment of our wives to be able to help us understand that life doesn't always revolve around us. We need to be in covenant relationship. You know, both parties have their needs met. Most of us, again, got married because we wanted to be happy. But as you grow into a covenant marriage, you'll be concerned for the well-being of your spouse. All right, number two. Not only are covenants different, is the purpose different, but I want you to know that covenant marriages are different because the promises are different. The promises are different. Different. And write this down. Covenants Covenants are built on unconditional promises. Covenants are built on unconditional promises. When God made a promise to Noah, it wasn't about what Noah would do or what Noah wouldn't do. God said, I'm doing this regardless of what you do. Right? When God made the Mosaic covenant told Moses, I'm going to do something for you and it doesn't matter what you do. This is, this is me. Abraham. Abraham. a picture of the Abrahamic covenant is a wonderful picture. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out, okay, out of his his homeland in Ur of the Chaldees, and calls him to go out and to establish the Hebrew race of people. He says, get up and take all your family and go that way. And so Abram does. He gets up and he takes his family. God stops him in the middle of Canaan and he says, look around. Everywhere where the sun touches, everywhere that you look around, all those places, that's the land that I'm going to give unto your seed and unto your heritage. And then God makes a covenant with him. He says, I'm going to bless him that bless thee, curse him that curse of thee, and I'm going to make it thee a great nation. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Genesis 15, now this covenant that God made with Abraham is repeated over and over again. It's repeated in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, over and over and over again. God repeats this covenant. In Genesis 15, God comes together to, to kind of seal the deal with Abraham. And the way that that is pictured is, they take these animals, and they begin, and God causes Abram to come into a deep sleep, okay? He puts him to sleep, and Abram has this vision. He takes these animals, and he divides them, and, and they, again, all, all covenants involve sacrifice or shedding of blood, and they took these animals, and they divided them. They divided them, they divided them, they divided them, divide them, and then birds on the end. There was birds on each side. And the way that parties entered into covenant in, in Abram's day, today we would sign a piece of paper or we would shake hands. The way that they did it in Abram's day was they divided these animals and the two parties together would walk between those, those animals that had died. They would walk between them and thus seal the covenant. The covenant would be, would be established. So here's what happens in Genesis 15. God takes Abra, Abraham, Abram at that time, he puts him to sleep, he parts that raiment, and then God is pictured as passing through the middle of that. Abram does not walk with God through that. That is Abraham, I mean God passes through that without Abraham's presence. The picture of that is that God is making this promise, not based on what Abraham would do, but God is making this promise on the basis of what God has chosen to do and doesn't have anything to do with whether Abraham is going to follow through or not. That's the difference between contract and covenant. Covenants are built on a promise that's everlasting. You know, contracts have limits. Contracts have terms. Listen, many of the covenants in the Bible had no bearing on the behavior of the other party party involved. Listen, are you you in a, a a contractual marriage says, I will do for my wife or I will do for my husband if they behave and react and respond in this way. If they don't, they're not getting what I'm going to give them. That is not what covenant is. Covenant is, regardless of how they act, regardless of how they behave, regardless of how they respond, I'm going to do this because I'm responsible. I have made this promise and commitment, and that commitment is not based on their behavior. That commitment is not based on what they do for me or what they do not do for me. That commitment is, I'm responsible. This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul... In giving us, in giving us uh, the Apostle Paul talks about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about separating for a time, but then coming back together. Okay, He talks about, he says in the matter of intimacy, that if we fail to meet those intimate needs, we are defrauding one another. It's marriage fraud when we fail to meet those needs for one another. Then Peter, when he's talking about a saved wife living with an unsaved husband, says for the saved wife to live in the, the house with that person, and to let him see her testimony, and to live in such a way that she reflects Jesus Christ, and that he can be one through the testimony of the unsaved wife. You know and why? Because regardless, regardless of whether you're married to someone unsaved or someone saved, God still looks at that marriage okay, as a covenant. And you make this promise to do it regardless of the other person's behavior. Listen, listen, Jesus did not love us because we loved him first. Jesus did not love us because we were lovable. Jesus did not love us because we could offer him something or do something for us. He came and he gave himself regardless of whether or not we would respond and regardless of how we would act and regardless of how we would behave. I'm glad that God didn't look at us and say contractually, I'm only obligated to you if you do such and such. He did not act on it that way. He acted upon it in a covenant manner. I'm making a promise to you, and I will hold true to that promise regardless of how you act towards me. And you ought to be glad today that your salvation is based on the covenant promise of God and not on some contract that God can rip up anytime He wants to. Thank you, Lord. And So you better look at your marriage that way. Your marriage does not have terms, and it does not have limits. Covenant marriages are willing to do things even when the other party doesn't behave as expected. If a husband commits to listen to his wife, he listens regardless of her mood, the way she speaks, or what she says. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry about that, guys. This is... is, I I struggle in this area, too. When when she rants... Okay, you Sometimes you feel like the object, right? The object of anger. Okay? You feel like she's angry at you. She's really not, but she, she's the only, you're the only one that she can tell. Right? And then you make the idiot move of interrupting her and trying to fix it while she's telling you. Okay? First off, shut up. Okay? That's the best thing you can do is shut up. And secondly, don't try and get your toolbox out and fix it. All she really wants you to do is listen. That's really all she wants. And she wants you to listen regardless of what she's saying, regardless of how she's saying, regardless of how long it takes. Thank God for the DVR, right? All right? Thank the Lord that he gave us the DVR. The pause button is your friend, man. All right? You'll catch back up. It may take you a couple hours worth of commercials to fix it afterwards, but you'll catch up with the live programming at some point, alright? Be honest about it, alright? If if, listen, if his wife wants to receive the benefit of the covenant, she must be good. If a husband commits to listen to his wife, he listens regardless. Now, if his wife wants to receive the benefit of the covenant, she must be willing to talk. Okay? If she doesn't, she's refused to honor his commitment to the covenant. That is, here's this. God has told you that if you'll come to him in his name and his authority and ask him according to his will, he will hear you and answer your prayer. But if you refuse to obey and you refuse to pray, you don't get the benefit of that promise. So when you promise to listen, men, that listening must be open. But ladies, if you refuse to tell us and talk to us and make us chase you around and it works the other way, then you've you've forfeited the benefit of the covenant. She's not taking advantage of the problem of the promise. This is the way it works in the matters of submission, love, intimacy. The offer is available. We must be willing to do even if the other party doesn't behave the way we want. Thirdly, not only the promise is different in the covenant the purpose different in the covenant, but the pursuit is different in covenant. The pursuit is different. Covenant, write this down. Covenant relationships are based on steadfast love. Covenant relationships are based on steadfast love. In the Old Testament, the word Hesed is used, and in the New Testament, the word agape is used. Both of these words, Hesed and Agape convey deep, sacrificial love. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, you've probably read that passage over and over again, and you've probably tried in your mind to substitute the word love for charity. Okay, Because in our King James Bible, it's charity, 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 charity. You're like, okay, I don't get it. This is the same word as translated love in so many other passages of Scripture. It's called the great love passage, but yet they decided to use the word charity. I don't get it. I'll tell you exactly why they decided to use the word charity. Charity in our day is kind of convoluted because we think about charity, about charitable organizations and what charitable organizations can do and and how we can give and support somebody else. But here's the concept of charity in the New Testament. The concept of charity in the New Testament is a love that's driven to be willing to sacrifice and to give. That's why our translators used in 1 Corinthians 13 the word charity for agape because charity has the concept of pursuing and giving. And you go back and read all of the the concepts of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that's what agape love does. Agape love pursues. Agape love is willing to sacrifice. Agape love is willing to give. In Ephesians 5, when Paul talked about loving your wife, that concept of love is a sacrificial love. What kind of love did Jesus ask of us? He asked supreme love, did he not? Jesus said, if you don't don't hate your father, and your mother, and your son, and your daughter, he said, if you don't hate them, in relation to me, of course, now Jesus wasn't saying that we have to hate them. He was using a hyperbole. He was comparing. He was saying, your love for me ought to make everything else look like hatred. You ought to love me and put me in a place that is supreme. Now I'm going to tell you, when you love your wife, and you love your husband, God wants you to love with agape, with hesed. Okay? The kind of love that is sacrificial and willing to give. Covenants are always built on sacrificial love. They're always built on the willingness to do. Uh, again, in the Old Testament, the word hesed is translated as kindness, goodness, and loving kindness. As believers, we love knowing that God's love is not fickle and is always constant towards us. Don't you like that? Don't you like knowing that God's not going to change his mind about whether he loves you? Mm-hmm. Don't you aren't you glad knowing that when you no matter how you behave, you can still go to him as your heavenly father, confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad for the ability to repent and get right with God? Aren't you glad that God's mercies are new every morning? That concept of mercies is as said. It's that supreme love that God has towards us. It's not conditioned or based on our behavior. Listen, your wife and your you, your wife and your husband ought to be able to wake up every morning and believe that your love is the same for them, or has grown since yesterday. That it has not diminished in any way. That regardless of what they do, regardless of what arguments you have, well, I and I've talked several times, we've never considered divorce ever. Murder, yes. <laughs> Divorce, no. Okay. And we want to know, at the end of those knockdown, dragged out fights, we want to know that the other party's not looking to flee, and that the next in the next few hours or the next morning, that that relationship is going to be still solid and like new. That's the concept of covenant covenant marriage. A covenant marriage says, regardless of how bad the fight is, regardless of how difficult things get, we are committed, and you are stuck with me. okay? Because that's, And, I, and I'm really sorry about that, but again, you're stuck, you're stuck. Okay? While it does have an emotional element, this kind of love is choosing to have a positive regard for your spouse. It's choosing. By the way, love in the Bible is never spoken of in an emotional sense. It is not an emotion. It is a choice of action. It's a choice of action. You choose to love or not to love. You don't fall out of love. People say that all the time when they get divorced, I just don't love them anymore. No, you chose. At some point, you woke up and decided that you were not going to love that person anymore. That is, not, that, is, that is not what covenant marriage is. Covenant marriage says, I'm going to choose to love you. And I'll choose to pursue, just like God does us. The Bible says, "The Son of Man come to seek and to save that which was lost." In Luke chapter number 15, Jesus gives us an example of a shepherd that leaves the ninety-nine and goes after the one, of a woman who loses a piece of silver and she sweeps the house until she finds it, and of a father who loses a son who looks on the horizon waiting for him to come. There's lost. There's a lost son. There's a lost silver, and there's lost sheep in that passage all of it showing to us and, and, and giving us the concept of God as a pursuing God, one who loves us with constant love, one who cares for us and loves us supremely, that is the love. Listen, you ever give up on your children? No. Okay? Your children may disappoint you, they may behave in such a way, you know, I mean, you, your five-year-old doesn't, you know, come in dirty and you go, I'm done with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Relationship Oh, find someplace else, else to live. We're taking you to the orphanage. You would talk about scarring again, okay? You would talk about giving him mental problems, okay? You approach it that way, but we don't care to approach our spouses. We don't care to approach them with that lack of love and that lack of determination that God has for us. Go, go to Proverbs chapter 16, for just a second. Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. Look at me at verse number 3. You know, a lot of times we feel like if I don't feel like doing something, I shouldn't do it. Did you know that the Bible says if you'll do what you're supposed to do, your feelings will follow behind it? You know the Bible says that if you'll just do what you know is right, that you'll feel better about it? You ever not wanted to go on visitation or not wanted to go on soul winning? But then you go soul winning. Feel so much better about it after you went, even though you didn't want to at the front. That's God at work. Look at Proverbs 16. It's a biblical truth. Proverbs 16. Notice what it says in verse number three: Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. No, no, no. I just, I just can't see myself doing that. I just don't. I, I I'm just not. I don't. I'm not in the right frame of mind to do it. Wrong. Do it. And God will allow the thoughts and the emotions to follow after. Same way in your marriage. Same way in your marriage. You may not feel like doing, but you know it's right. But I'm going to tell you, honor the Lord. Honor the Lord with your actions, and your thoughts and your feelings will follow behind you. Okay? And then last, perseverance is, they get, fourthly, i got two more. Let me get them real quick. Number four, perseverance is different. In in covenants, perseverance is different. Covenant relationships, write this down, covenant relationships view commitments as permanent. They view commitments as permanent. When you go back to the book of Ruth, a covenant is made between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. They've lost everything. They've lost everything. They've lost their husband. They've lost everything they have. They're going to return back to the land of Bethlehem. Now, understand this, that Ruth made a commitment to Naomi that was lifelong. She essentially committed to be her daughter and to live with her and take care of her and cling to her, and it was a lifelong commitment. Think about this. Today we see a rainbow in the sky. We're reminded of the permanence of God's commitment to Noah, right? It, it, has God, because Noah's dead, is God's commitment to Noah gone? No, God's commitment is still the same because it passed on to us. Think about this. David's covenant with Jonathan, we mentioned this earlier, David's covenant with Jonathan was so permanent that he looked for someone from his family to show kindness to later on. And that man is Methubah. He does that later on in the book of 2 Samuel. Listen, marriage is until death do us part. Until death do us part. They don't change. Covenants don't change when things get difficult. They don't change when things are not as we want. This is how we need to look at our commitment in our marriage. Are things always going to be easy? No. No. But that shouldn't change how we look at it and the resolve that we have if we're in covenant. Think about this. Jonathan and David's covenant had to weather an angry father and an angry king. And yet their covenant still endured. Noah Noah's covenant had to endure a flood, and yet it still endured. Ruth's had to go into a strange land in poverty and in bitterness. When Naomi returns, she says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I mean, she's, she's bitter when she returns back to Bethlehem, but yet still the covenant endures. Listen, it endured and it did not change. Resolve right now to get out of the contract that you're in and into a genuine covenant marriage. Because that's what you did when you made a promise before God to your spouse on the day that you got married. You entered into covenant. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, lastly, number five, not only is the perseverance different, but number five, the pathway is different. And write this down. Covenant relationships require confrontation and forgiveness. This is one of the harder ones. Covenant relations, covenant relationships, covenant, covenants, all relationships require confrontation and forgiveness. The pathway in your marriage is always to get things right is always the same. Confrontation and forgiveness. Got to be the same. That's the way God dealt with covenants. When God's covenant people were getting wrong, you know what God did? He sent them a prophet to confront them. And if they repented, God forgave them and said, let's forget about this and move on. That has to be the pattern of our marriages. When things go wrong, when things are not as as we want them to be, we have to be willing to confront it, not in anger, not in haughtiness, not in pride, not in arrogance, in meekness, in meekness. By the way, the way that we confront our spouses is the same way that we're supposed to confront those that are within sin in the church. Galatians 6, 1. Rather than if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That is, remember that you are susceptible to the same types of things. So when you go to your spouse, remember that it very well may be them coming to you next time because you could be the dumb one. Right? It could be you putting your foot in your mouth and swallowing up your ankle. Okay? Be honest about, about, about the situation and understand that you're a sinner and prone to the same things. Confrontation and forgiveness. Now, I'm going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness tonight. I think, as far as the anchors of relationship, I think, first of all, understanding a relationship anchored in covenant is one of the most important things, and I think one of the things that we struggle with most, and I'm going to be honest, I think one of the things that I struggle with most in my own marriage, in my own relationship, is the ability to forgive quickly. We let things linger way too long. We let them linger way too long, and that is not the way God deals with us. So we're going to talk about forgiveness tonight. God always dealt with His people in confrontation and forgiven. He always held them responsible for their actions. And was willing to live the penalty, continue growing in the relationship. Turn to Psalm 89 for just a second, and we'll, we'll be done. Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, we find where God talks about how He deals with His covenant with Israel. Psalm 89, verse 30. The Bible says, "Notice if His children forsake if His children forsake My law." And walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, there's the hesed. There's the hesed, there's that sacrificial godly love. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is going out out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. This is talking about the Davidic coming. He's, I'm not going to go back on what I promised. Verse 36. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, and as a faithful witness in heaven, seal it. If God says, I'm not going, regardless of what you do, I'm not going back on what I promised David. I'm not going back. And that has to be the way that we approach it. Sometimes in the Bible... Things get, the, the relationship gets, gets muddy, and there has to be a renewal of the covenant. Perhaps that's what you need, and that's what I need. It's just to stop and renew the covenant. Or just to stop and say, I've been looking at this way too contractually. What I really need is to have covenant marriage. I think that's what God wants us to have. That's the way he refers to it. That's the best way to do it.